In the beginning of the history of experimental observation or any other kind of observation on scientific things, it's intuition. It's intuition. Which is really based on just experience with everyday objects that suggest reasonable explanations for things. I'm Hunter Mulcair. And I'm Amy Donaldson. And welcome to Two Shrinks Pod. And this is a podcast all about psychology. Most people think about psychology is all about emotions, but really it is the science of behavior. In our last episode, we talked about crying, which is a behavior unique to humans. And with this episode, we wanted to explore the flip side of crying and spend some time talking about laughing and laughter. Humans first start to laugh at about four months of age. and Some people laugh a lot, others seldom at all. Laughter can signal joy, sadness, shock, and can be a way to cope with the most dire of circumstances. Laughter has a social function and can have social consequences. Laughing at someone or something can be fun. Laughing together can bond in a way nothing else can. Laughter can also signal contempt. And as we all know, if you laugh at the wrong time, it can cause a horrible social faux pas. With this episode, Amy and I have chosen two pieces of research on laughter, and we're going to alternate talking about each one. We've previously done an episode on humour, that was episode 42, back in the housing days, Amy, of 2019, when all we had to worry about was an orange-skinned baboon being the leader of the free world, <laughs> before, the, before the plagues and the, and the earthquakes. I, I digress. Anyway, so this time we're going to be focusing as much as we can on the act and function and things related to laughter. Uh, but we probably will cover a bit of humour research as we go because it's kind of inescapable. Before I pass the baton over to Amy, who's going to start us off, I just want to remind you to rate and review the show on Apple or wherever it is that you listen to us as this helps people find out about the show and boost our profile. So, Amy, you're going to take us off with a piece of research on laughter. Tell us a bit about it. So the one that I've chosen to go first is a developmental one. As we all know, I love talking about kids. And so the one that I found was a called Social Facilitation of Laughter and Smiles in Preschool Children by Adiman and colleagues in Frontiers in Psychology in 2018. When I had a look, I was thinking about how when you see kids laugh, often it's like this ripple effect, like one of them will start laughing mm. and then someone else will, and then they can't control themselves. It kind of is this contagious thing where they're not really sure, I don't think at some point, what they're laughing at anymore. It's just a whole bunch of giggles. Mm. And so I looked up contagion and laughter. And what I found was a whole bunch of research on adults that was kind of was okay but it basically said you know adults laugh more when other adults are also laughing and then I found this one on preschool children which caught my attention a little bit more than the adult stuff so these researchers they talk about how laughter isn't just a human thing it's also it's also been identified in primates and mm. so people people like chimps animals like chimps <laughs> also laugh and they laugh more when they're with other chimps than when they're on their own. Yep. The other group that it's been found in is rats. Yep. I don't know if you've seen the videos of rats being tickled. No, it's, that would that sounds disgusting. It's quite bizarre, but they do laugh. Yeah. It's weird. Anyway. Yeah. So, so just pausing on that, I, I found a piece of research. It's not one I'm going to talk about, but they we looked at, I think they found like 65 animals that do some kind of vocalization 
that's sort of akin to laughter, which mm-hmm. is quite interesting when you think about crying is the is unique to humans, but you know the joyful laughter is actually more broadly seen. And also, in the, 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 my favourite bit was that never says that you laugh like a hyena, right? <laughs> Hyenas were not one of those sixty-five animals. No that, way. Yeah. The Lion King lying to us all of these years. Oh. Just not okay. Not okay. Anyway, continue. So for all of the animals, it seems to have a social function to it. So, you know, rats, it's the interaction with someone else. With chimps, it's about being around other chimps. For us, we do lots of checking with other people when we're laughing. Right from those early months, it babies laugh at other people's faces or voices or things like that. It's got a social connection mm, mm. aspect to it. They've done some diary studies where people recorded every time they laughed over the course of a week and they found that we laugh over 30 times more often when we're with others than when we're on our own. So it's definitely got some sort of social communication function there and we tend to integrate it into our speech. So we laugh as a sort of punctuation when we're telling a story. It comes to the end of a sentence and then we'll have a chuckle. And we pretty consistently laugh more at, comedy when we're with other people and that's even if we're told that a friend is watching the same thing as us but we can't see them so we don't know if they're watching it or not but if we're told that a friend's in the next room watching the same thing we laugh more than if we're on our own Mm. the idea with this study was to look at preschoolers it's quite a small one in that they had 20 preschoolers from this one kindergarten in the uk aged between two years and seven months to four years and one month. And they had them watch two clips of the cartoon Bernard Bear, who I hadn't heard of before. Have you? No, I don't think I know him. It looks like it's made in an odd combination of locations, Korea, France and Spain. But it's nonverbal, so there's no dialogue, but it's all about slapstick comedy and kind of incongruous humour, things that don't quite fit. So exactly what little kids are into and he's like this polar bear with quite exaggerated features so what they did was that they had these preschoolers complete the study at their kindergarten in a corner of their regular room away from other pupils but with privacy screens up like you have in an office and for each trial they had the kids sit on the floor in front of a tv and then they watched a six minute clip of bernard bear and then had to rate how funny they thought the show was on a three-point emoji scale from not funny quite funny to very funny uh, they each had to rate the funniness on their own so that they weren't influenced by other kids. They had hidden cameras recording the kids and then the researchers watched the video and counted the amount of smiles and laughs in each condition. So in one condition, the kids watched the video alone. With another condition, they had just one other person with them. And then in the third, it was in a group of six. Mm-hmm. What I liked was that at the end of each trial, each kid got to choose a sticker as a reward for their participation. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. It's just gorgeous. <laughs> was it one of, those, one of those scratch and sniff stickers? Like they were always the most prized ones. Yeah, those ones and the glittery ones are always mm. the first to Although go. Like the like slightly bubbly ones. Oh, yeah. premium. <laughs> I occasionally I'll have stickers in my office and I don't often have rules around play, but around stickers there often has to be because they want to use the entire sheet of stickers Mm. on the one piece of paper. There's no like, I'll just try one. Or if it's a booklet, it will be 
the entire booklet. <laughs> Just, yeah, cover everything. Yep. So results-wise, the kids smiled and laughed significantly more when they're in pairs than if they're on their own. Mm-hmm. And in a group and on their own. But there was no difference between whether they were with just one other person or five others, which really surprised the researchers because in adults, it increases the more people that you're with. Mm. So the larger the group is, the more... The more raucous it is, yeah. Exactly. Like if you're at a comedy gig versus... Well, I, I, like, as I've mentioned on the pod before, I worked in cinemas when I was at university as my weekend job. Mm. And... It was noticeable if you had a full cinema versus a half full cinema to a third full cinema, and it was a comedy. The mm. it, the laughs, the the volume of laughs, and the amount of laughs not not just the oh you know there's more people therefore it's louder, but like that there was just noticeably much more laughter. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, there was a film American Pie at the time, and mm. you could go into different cinemas, and people were having different experiences. Uh, with with a with a full cinema versus a, a interesting em- empty cinema, yeah, yeah, which makes total sense, right? Because they're sort of cued by other people, yeah, laughing. Some of the early researchers thought that you couldn't have both like a social laugh and a humor based laugh at the same time. But what these researchers were saying, well, is well, they both occur at the same time. You might find something funny, mm. but the degree that you laugh at it is social Mm, mm, mm. so there was no difference there's no impact of the whether you had company or not on how funny the kids rated the clips they Mm. found them all equally funny and there was also no relationship between how funny they thought the clip was and how much they laughed and smiled so it was all independent and based on that social side of things Mm. what they also noted but they couldn't look at statistically because of the size of the group was that usually one particularly extroverted, like gregarious kid would start off the laughing and then it would go in a chain reaction around the room and that they'd all, they'd make eye contact as they then started laughing. And that for the kids that were on their own, they tried to engage the researchers in their laughter when they did laugh. Like they looked at them and made eye contact, but the researchers were told, of course, not to respond and not to be watching the clip Mm. just to be looking straight ahead and so these little kids was like try and engage them in it and then get nothing i really wanted more of this like i assume with the sample size they couldn't pull apart you know whether there are particular people in groups who have that influence over the others but it would be fascinating to know whether the you know it's always the same person that kicks off the laughter Mm. chain Mm. (laughs) or if it shifts around the place and it doesn't actually matter. It's just one starts giggling and then the rest yeah. go. Yeah, look, I know I notice that with my children that mm-hmm. when if you're watching something with them and they start laughing, then they will check in with you and it's really bonding and reassuring and they mm. work to like laugh. Like it's like a shared thing. It's a shared connection of like, yeah, yeah we're both having this thing. And like, whereas if you're like just looking at your phone or something and you miss it, it's very disappointing for them. You mm. know? But it's about the interaction between the two of you laughing at the same thing. Yeah, exactly right. Leah, because you both find it funny and you both enjoy mm. it. Like, and that's that social, that's that social piece, right? Exactly. Yeah. So what was their conclusion with their research? That there were some differences between kids and adults, but that 
essentially we have the same social processes that we learn it really early on, mm. you know, from toddlerhood, that laughing about things together is a connection kind of activity and that we enjoy laughing with other people and we kind of seek it out and that fuels itself. Mm. Um, they did list a whole bunch of limitations to their study because they were in a familiar location and all of that kind of thing, yada, mm. yada, yada. But what I think they highlighted was doing it somewhere where the kids were comfortable mm. meant that it ruled out any role of anxiety for those kids. They mm. were just watching a TV show at their kinder. Yeah, reduce, reduce and so it, yeah. They're all relaxed and just hanging out with their friends. So, so they, did they have a did they have a discussion around what the function of it is socially or why it's contagious? Nothing about why, just that it serves those social bonding functions. Mm. That when we jointly laugh at things, and that's one of the quickest ways to make connection with other people, mm. and that all of it's about making connection, but not so much about the. Like, I was curious about why it seems to be particularly contagious for children. And I don't know, they didn't really go into that. And I guess my thoughts are that there's something around the lowered inhibitions of kids mm. that they don't try and moderate their laughter so much. It's just, it well, just comes they're, out. They're more in the moment, right? Whereas I think, you know, mm. adults, we've, you know, we're, we're thinking about things all the time and, you know, whereas like when you go to comedy festival, that that's when people are, are there to laugh, right? And mm. then they kind of get a bit annoyed when the comedian's a bit shit and mm. doesn't deliver. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So I was, I was curious about why people laugh more and some people don't laugh at all. You know, what I've noticed at work is that, you know, some people will just very difficult to get a laugh out of them right? and look perplexed when you, me, I make jokes all the time or I, mm. or I find things legitimately funny and, you know, it's a way of amusing myself. <laughs> um, and so I was always kind of curious about that and, and you know, and I also think about the, those experiences and, and most people have that where you, like you watch a funny movie with someone and someone just doesn't really, they, they don't laugh. They go, yeah, it's funny. Yeah, that, that was funny, right? And I think of the experience with a housemate we were watching, Woody Allen, Annie Hall, and there's like a stand-up thing and he's kind mm. of doing his thing. And it's quite funny to watch it with other people and like we, we laughed a lot and they, this person didn't laugh at all. And then he's like, oh, yeah, it's really funny. He's just really rapid fire. And you're like, oh, okay, you found it funny. All right, right, right. That's good, yeah. that's good. So, you know... It was hard to find something on laughing in particular because, like, mostly was to do with humour, right? So, this is an older article by Willibald Rutsch and Deckers in the European <laughs> Journal of Personality in 1993. It's called Do Extrovets Like to Laugh? Analysis of the Situational Humour Response Questionnaire. So, really, what we're going to talk about here is what personality characteristics are related to laughing mm -hmm. uh, leads on quite nicely with what you were talking about so that you know they know some people laugh or smile you know the, the amount that they do differs between individuals this has been observed in experimental studies some uh subjects do not smile or laugh during an entire presentation of humorous stuff whereas others are very responsive so they suggest that the propensity to laugh 
is a habit. So that it's a narrow specific set of behavior, even though like, I think that there's like subcategories of of laughter. I'd love Mm. to find like some kind of classification on that. But so that if you imagine a a pyramid, like habits would be down the bottom. A group of habits would be a personality trait. And then many correlated traits would be a personality type, right? And Mm -hmm. so they were interested in which personality traits this middle point would subsume laughter propensity like which where, where would it sit under essentially personality theorists have suggested that the tendency to laugh is a characteristic of someone who's extroverted this, this tendency to laugh and be merry but at the time of writing in 1993 it was very mixed empirical evidence for a relationship between extroversion and laughter Mm-hmm. So, just to back up a bit, extroversion is indicates how outgoing and social someone is. So, so practically, they are someone who enjoys being with others, enjoys being in social situations. That they seem full of energy. They're, they're warm, positive, gregarious. Theoretically, we would psychologists would say that they draw energy from others. We would say someone who's introverted is more reflective and reserved. They, you know, they draw energy primarily from themselves is sort of the dichotomy i'd want you to think about for this study what they did is a classic psychology study amy university mm. students of course <laughs> um course credit uh, yep. so there was 165 german students Okay. friends and family as well as students and then there was 118 american students they completed the isink personality questionnaire so that had a measure of extroversion neuroticism social desirability and and psychoticism and they had a questionnaire called the situational humor response questionnaire which is a mouthful mm. um, it measures a propensity to smile or laugh in a variety of unexpected or demanding situations so it's not humor appreciation. It's not do you okay. find something humorous, enjoyable. It's would you laugh, right? So, okay. for example, question would be what would your reaction, what would be your reaction to a TV scene that only you judged funny? Okay, so yeah. Like, would you laugh? And so you would rate it on, you know, oh, I found no amusement or I feel amused but did not show it outwardly. Uh, would have smiled, would have laughed, would have laughed heartily. Mm-hmm. And then there's also a measure of like, you know, do you choose friends who are able to laugh? And then there's also like some global ratings across laughter, laughter across situations. So they posit that it measures smiling and laughter rather than humor per se. And like your research, it doesn't correlate with the funniness of ratings of okay, jokes yep. and cartoons. So you can find something funny, but not laugh, right? Mm. And and so and and this is and this is really what I'm quite interested in. It's like, well, why is it that some people do, right? So, as they predicted, and in line with what they expected, they found significant correlation between extroversion and laughing, right? Mm-hmm. So the correlations were 0.52 in the Germans and 0.36 in the Americans. So they they think the larger correlation in the Germans was because it was a like a slightly broader age range. For some reason, they think that that helped. So, you know, that's, I mean, 0.5 is a pretty strong thing. Mm. 0.36 is probably not as strong, but... It's kind of average in psychology, Yeah, but, but like, you know, when you talk to people in medicine, they go, what? <laughs> that's, what do you mean the correlate, like the, the significant correlation is like 0.9 or something. Yeah. Um, there was a significant 
but I would say low correlations between extroversion and having friends who are easily amused. So that would basically be, if you're extroverted, you'd be more likely to choose friends who are easily amused. But so it sounds like it's it's likely, but it's not it's not super strong, right? Because I guess if you're extroverted, you probably uh, are friends with lots of people who are extroverted. Yeah. <laughs> so what am I thinking is they also found there was a small positive relationship between psychoticism and laughing. So psychoticism is not uh, psychosis in, in this thing. It's con- conceptually similar to psychopathy. If you think about psychoticism and then sort of lower or made up being of two categories of impulsivity and sensation seeking. So okay. someone who's, who's if you don't know much about psychopathy, you know, someone who's got high on psychopathy, you know, they have this absence of guilt, but they also have a lot of impulsivity, right? And a lot of sensation seeking, right? And so mm. they do things that, you know, they're not constrained by guilt, but also they sort of seek out risky situations uh, risky situations or, or they'll, they'll just kind of do stuff without thinking about it right mm. so they found that there was a positive relationship between this measure and laughter so it was about 0.26 so it was significant in both samples and, and what they they found that was related to laughing and at embarrassing mis, mishaps like falsely recognizing a stranger as a friend or in non-conforming situations so and you found a TV scene funny mm. or schadenfreude, so like a waiter spilling soup on one of your friends, right? Yeah. So so these sort of, they r- reflect like this impulsive, non-conforming, antisocial and unempathetic traits, if that makes sense. Yeah, so they're more comfortable laughing at other people or laughing at things that might not be socially acceptable to laugh at because it, it doesn't bother them that that's not okay. Yeah, or, yeah, or they would just kind of do it. Like, and I've certainly known people where they kind of, like, they laugh a lot. And you're like, dude, like, you're not obeying the social conventions here. Like, shut <laughs> you're not it. not helping yourself. Yep, like, cause... you know, kick him under the table. It's been <laughs> like, um, neuroticism and pro- I was not related to uh, propensity to laugh. So, which is interesting because it, it wasn't negatively related. It just wasn't related, right? Yeah. And in the German sample, high propensity to laugh was associated with low social desirability. So they seem to think that like that was a cultural thing, right? Yeah. You know, they, they did point to the fact that this was self-report. And so, you know, doing it observationally to measure laughing in the real world would have been best mm-hmm. to compare that with an extroversion. And, you know, and they, they finished with the discussion that to predict whether someone's going to laugh, you, you need to know their humor preference, but also their propensity to laugh. And, and they they sort of discuss we know maybe you could probably just use a measure of extroversion as a pretty good predictor is what they were suggesting so yeah but it it, it, you know they didn't go much deeper than that but i I quite liked it it's like yeah okay some people just to do with their personality makeup right Mm. you know then they're less extroverted and you know, and that's why they don't laugh quite as much although i'm I'm sure there's something else like (laughs) some people just aren't funny there's got to be a another piece to the puzzle, doesn't there? Yeah, like it's it's not just extroversion. I would suggest like it feels no. like some people are really quick witted. And I, I also, as we're preparing for this, I was thinking about that. You know, there's people who don't laugh as often, but then there's also people who seem to suppress their laughter a lot and then when they do laugh, it's like this explosion of laughter that they haven't been able to contain. Yeah. 
like it, there's it's almost an on off switch rather than other people like you or I where there's a range of different laughter that we exhibit from just a quick giggle to tears of laughter. Yeah. There seems to be some people where they're kind of like it's not okay to laugh or it's not okay to laugh openly mm. and then you surprise them or you say something that doesn't they don't expect and it just bursts out of them and then they look embarrassed. Mm, they pull and, it back, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's got to be something there the, as well. They kind of like, yeah, or they kind of look a little bit irritated with the fact that you've you've managed to sneak in and get them to laugh. Like, yeah. When, <laughs> a friend of mine on social media posted that she'd finally got her husband to like laugh at something and it had been... <laughs> 10 years or something she was saying she's like i did it i did it yep (laughs) i could almost just feel his teeth grinding no no, no, i've never met even met the guy anyway so where are you where are you taking us to the flip side of laughter Mm. so often we speak about laughter as being a positive thing but then there's also the reverse and a lot of the psychological research i'd say about half of what i found was on ridicule and being laughed at and laughing at others. And what's the fancy word for it? Gelatophobia? Oh, I'm going to go into a few fancy words. <laughs> okay. Because <laughs> um, it seems to me, I mean, often whenever we do any topic like this, you'll often say to me, like, how is it that you find a dark or a negative study? But what... I was tr- I was fighting that comment this time, but yeah. <laughs> But what happens, like, psychologists are interested in the things that people find difficult. And so the the bulk of our research is on stuff that somebody finds difficult. So I think that's what happens. And when I was thinking about laughter and the patterns of laughter and things like that, I was thinking about how it feels to be laughed at and whether you're okay with that or not. Because not everyone is. Mm. And everyone has a different pattern in their family of how that works. I'm certainly one of the people in my family who gets laughed at a lot on one one half of the family, it's kind of, it's pretty relentless. Whereas on the other side, I'm not laughed at at all. And so it's... Feared. Feared. Exactly. There's there's an element of respect and fear on one side and <laughs> complete lack of it on the other. Yeah. Yep. The study I found is titled An Initial Study on How Families Deal with Ridicule and Being Laughed At, Parenting Styles and Parent-Child Relations with Respect to Gelatophobia, Gelatophilia and Catagolasticism. <laughs> I've practiced that. <laughs> <laughs> By Freya and colleagues in the Journal of Adult Development in 2012. I'm going to break down the terms. They come up a lot and I'm going to try and use the basic words for each one rather than these phrases, but we'll see how we go. Gelatophobia is the fear of being laughed at, Mm -hmm. and gelatophobes feel ridiculous and they experience laughter as a way of being put down. So they think of laughing as being about being laughed at rather Mm. than laughing with. Mm. When they've looked at the childhoods of adults with this fear, they thought that they would find more cases of being more severely laughed at but actually what they they haven't found that they've found the same amount of incidents but that when people with this fear look back on their childhoods they seem to experience those incidents more intensely Mm. and more negatively than other Mm. people 
Gelatophilia is the joy of being laughed at, so enjoying when people laugh at you. So they seek and create situations where they can make others laugh at them. They don't feel shame when they're telling other people about a misfortune, but they enjoy the laughter. And and it's not about putting themselves down or having low self-esteem. It's about entertaining other people. And then catagolasticism is the joy of laughing at others. And so people who are high on this, they actively seek out and create situations where they can laugh at other people. And they think people who don't like being laughed at should defend themselves because there's nothing wrong with laughing at other people. So, yeah, so we've got phobia, which is the fear, philia, which is the, like, if you want to think about paraphilias. The enjoyment. Enjoyment aspect. And then what's the last one? Catagolasticism. Catagolasticism. (laughs) Yeah. So the two types of enjoyment, the laughing at others and being laughed at, seem to be related to peer relationships. So adults who enjoy that often remember more occasions when they were younger where that was a good thing. So compared to the ones with phobias who remember them as an upsetting situation. So the authors talk about how humour runs in families in different ways. There's the modelling reinforcement element where parents model and encourage humour or they don't. There's stress and coping hypotheses about that you use humour as a way to deal with family stress and anxiety and then there's a potential for some sort of genetic mediation as well. So they wanted to look at family relationships and parenting styles and see whether there was any relationship between adult children, their adult siblings and their parents in their levels of those three. So the phobia and the two types of enjoyment. They had three samples. I really enjoyed the age groups of these samples. There was adult children that were aged between 17 and 76 years of age. (laughs) Parents that were aged between 34 and 82 and siblings that were aged between 18 and 61. So they approached the adult children and asked them to be a part of it and then asked them whether they would invite their parents and if they had any siblings, their siblings into it. Mm -hmm. They completed parenting measures and a questionnaire that's got a great name, the Faux-Fi-Cat-45, Phobia-Philia, Catagolasticism. 45 questions, uh, which I appreciated as an acronym. Yeah. Um, yep. It's little little things when you're reading articles, isn't it? It is. Like, oh, fo-fi cat. I like that. Yeah. Results-wise, for the gelatophobia, there was about 9% of adult children who reported some degree of the phobia, and their mothers, there was about 8% who had it, and only 1.5% of the fathers also had that phobia. Mm-hmm. Adult children were more likely to have it if their parents also had it. It wasn't related to whether their siblings had it or not. And then there was a bit of a gender pattern. So phobic sons had phobic fathers and mothers who didn't enjoy laughing at others. I kind of interpreted that as that it seems to be modelled that being laughed at is something that men should be worried about. And that their mothers don't actually, they don't play into that. It's not that they enjoy laughing at other people. Mm -hmm. So in the household, there's kind of a, we don't laugh at other people vibe. Mm -hmm. For the daughters, they had parents with higher phobias, so both parents, but both of their parents also had higher enjoyment of laughing at others, which feels like a confusing message to a kid. Like it's both a... So, it's so, not fun so, to be laughed at yourself, but it is fun to laugh at others. Well, maybe that they're high, you know, they're more likely to be anxious because they've got family history of phobia, but then they've got parents who laugh at people. Mm. 
that's that's how I would interpret yeah, that. Yeah. In terms of a parenting approach, both the the phobic parents and their children both reported that punishment was used as an approach in their household when they were younger. And they both reported that there was less warmth in the way that the parents behaved towards the children when they were growing up. This was split by gender. There was a pattern as well. So so it seems to play out differently in different. Boys have colder, colder parents yeah. and punitive mother, quite critical. And then girls have a cold father and a controlling mother. Mm. So the way I interpreted it was with both of those that it made me think that there doesn't seem to be much room for making mistakes, laughing at yourself, that exploration kind of stuff. Mm. It feels like a tightly controlled, rigid environment yeah. if you've got one parent who's cold and one who's controlling or punitive. Yeah, or critical, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, so, and so like the, the, the using laughter as a way of laughing at yourself and getting over something... Uh, mm. It's probably not so good, right? Yeah, it's, like, it's it would, serious. It wouldn't be rewarded. It'd be no. It'd be it'd make things worse. Yeah. yeah. In terms of enjoyment, the for adult children, enjoyment of laughing at yourself is related to your parents' enjoyment of laughing at themselves. Yeah. And for men only, it's related to having a father who enjoyed laughing at others. And then the enjoyment of laughing at others was unrelated to whether your parents did or not. But it makes sense that if you enjoy laughing at other people, mm. that it's not related to whether your parents did it. Because I can imagine if your parents did it, you might model that and mm. some people might go, I don't, I don't, I don't like that. I don't like that. And so you would get yeah. like a no finding rather than yeah. a positive or a negative. Yeah. Whereas it was for the siblings, it was related. So both types of enjoyment, it was positive rela- positively related. So if your siblings enjoyed laughing at themselves or at others more, then so did you. Yeah. Which kind of makes sense in that kind of... You're part of the a tribe. Peer, yeah. yeah. Peer relation rather than that. But I, I found this interesting because, like I said, I was thinking about those family dynamics and about whether it feels like something that needs to be pulled apart more about how much you were laughed at as a child or and whether that plays a part in mm. where you fit not just whether you enjoy it or not but whether you know it happens more in your family or whether everybody in the family is laughed at or whether it's just you mm. or all of those kind of nuances to yep. family dynamics well i mean i think they're all they're all the difficulty is that this is a there's three seemingly related constructs but they're actually quite different mm. you know so there's that fear of being laughed at that's to do with this sort of negative parenting styles cold environment versus say this positive modeling of, mm. of you know I, I you know my, my dad laughed himself and you know I, I laugh at myself and you can see easily how they would clash and you certainly like working with kids I see it a lot that there'll be either a parent or a child who really enjoys laughing at others mm. and laughing at themselves often and then the other one who's really scared of being laughed at and gets quite angry and often it's like it comes up in therapy with parents and kids because if it's like that, usually one's going, actually, you really hurt me when you laughed at me. Mm. And the other one's going, but it's fun. Like, yeah, like I don't like, understand why yeah. you don't think this is fun. <laughs> Which is like invalidates it. Exactly. And then yeah. it just spirals. And then often, often it's the kid who doesn't like being laughed at and then they get absolutely enraged. And then it's, the kid has an anger issue rather than this dynamic. Which, which then the parents would then find funny. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> 
So it, it felt like a useful article for me to read. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, like, I, I'm, I'm watching you. It's like, I can see that you've, you've got something out of this more than I've got out of it. Yes. <laughs> and also thinking about my own family dynamics. I'm like, yep, this all makes total sense. <laughs> Well, it's therapeutic. Yeah. Well, I mean, well, I was I was interested in the idea of black humor when we mm. were when we were talking about doing this pod. And I, and like a lot of things with this podcast, I remember actually finding an article years ago on emergency workers and black humor. And I think mm. I sort of I, I you know skimmed it or something, you know, in on the way to doing whatever assignment I was doing. You know, and so, so you know, like dark or, or gallows humour, you know, that's something that makes light of something that's that's generally taboo. Things that are usually serious or, or painful to discuss. And, like, I think about this a lot because, you know, particularly the way I've, I've laughed and others have laughed at some of the things that have occurred uh, in the hospital setting, mm. in, in clinical contexts, in, in the drug and alcohol setting, that, you know, you... like. <laughs> Like you're like, oh, this really funny thing happened, and then you're like, you look, you know, you're telling your friends about it. And you look across the table, and they're like, they look ashen, <laughs> and, yeah. and like, oh. and it doesn't seem to be like all health professionals have that particular humour either, because sometimes you can, because I tell those kind of stories as well, and sometimes mm. you think, well, this person's a psychologist, they'll no, they'll also, but no, no. It, and it, so I think like you get a, you get a much better strike rate with. Uh, people who work in medicine yeah. <laughs> than, than psychologists per se. Um, <laughs> so, you know, and, and I think also additionally, like I find that some people have a dark, dry sense of humour. And to me, that's always been the funniest mm. type of humour. You know, I think of David Sedaris's writing or yeah. Chuck Palahniuk who wrote Fight Club, you know, just stuff that is just... You know, appallingly dark, but just mm. very, very funny. Um, and if you if you've never read or you can actually get audiobooks of David Sedaris, I would absolutely strongly recommend. Um, so this so that was like a long intro, and, and I'm probably going to talk a little bit uh, like this is going to be a bit of a longer discussion here because it's a qualitative study, and so there's like a lot of quotes rather than numbers. So th- this is I nearly died laughing. Humor in funeral industry operators by Annalisa Grandi and and colleagues from the University of Turin in Italy. It was in Current Psychology 2019. So it's a qualitative study with funeral directors and crematorium workers. Um, <laughs> so. If you've worked in medicine or mental health, you are going to recognize a lot of this. Straight up, trigger warning. I'm going to read some quotes here. Some of this stuff you may not find funny. Mm-hmm. I found it funny. Please don't judge me um, <laughs> for it. If it's not your thing, skip forward about 10 or 15 minutes. <laughs> sure. Okay. So it was quite a long paper. So I'm going to s- hopefully get to the results just fairly quickly. But... There's a fair amount of study into death fields and humor. So emergency workers, nurses, firefighters, physicians, they note that humor is a coping strategy that, that, mm-hmm. that we use to foster positive attitudes when faced with the discomfort of death, right? 
it's a good tension reducer. Usually like it occurs when workers are all together, but away from the public. Mm. You know, and some people get frightened that they've got too much gallows humor, that they're becoming hardened and depersonalized. And, and also that it can shock newcomers. It's quite clear that it can shock newcomers. Medical students or, or whatever kind of coming on and going, oh my God, they're laughing about this. Like WTF. This isn't okay. Yeah, yeah. this is not okay. So they talk about a model that identifies four humor styles based on two dimensions. So the use of humor, which can be positive or negative, and the target, which is that it's directed at. So that's being either yourself or at someone else. Mm -hmm. So you can have, so I'm going to go through four here. There's a self-enhancing type. So that's a positive and self-directed. So that's aimed at coping with stressful situations, relieving tension. There's affiliative humor, so that's positive but directed at others. So that's a cohesiveness role, boosts positive morale and group identity, you know, share jokes, witty humor, right? Mm-hmm. You know, mocking of colleagues, right? <laughs> then the, you get into the negative one, so self-defeating, so that's negative but self-directed. So that's self-disparaging humor. You know, you're ingratiating yourselves to get approval from others. So, like, if you're a approval seeker, you'll probably make jokes about yourself to get mm. approval laughter, right? But that can hide negative feelings and anxieties at the expense of yourself, right? Like, you're, mm. was it the tears of a clown, essentially? Yeah. You know, like, the, the clown's the sad one. Although I just usually think clowns are just creepy. Um, Agreed. <laughs> we, we should do a pod on that. Just on fear, fear of clowns. Just... <laughs> Chlorophobia? Oh, something like that. Oh, yeah. Oh. There was a Doctor Who episode, like one of the late, later doctors, like the seventh doctor, and there was these creepy clowns. It's just always stuck with me. Anyway, maybe I should rewatch it and just try and get, you know, burn that phobia out. Exposure therapy, kind of. I'm not sure it'll work. Anyway, um, and the fourth is aggressive humor. So that's negative and other directed. So that's a bit like that laughing at other people thing. So that's sarcasm, disparaging, derision at the expense of others. So interviews or focus groups with 55 workers from crematoria, funeral agencies, hospital morgues, and cemeteries. 23 interviews, seven focus groups. And then they analyze the transcripts in line with these four styles of humor. And so they found three of them. They didn't find the self-defeating type which is the hmm. negative self-directed. And they seem to think that that might have been to do with the way that they collected the data, whereas perhaps if they observed or something, then you would have seen that self-defeating behaviour. But, you know, within a group setting, in the way that they were doing the interviews, probably probably, probably not. Mm. So, the, so the examples with the... So they, they found the... Th- these main themes and then some subtypes within it. So I'm, I'm, what I'm going to do is go through some stuff, right? So... Affiliative humour. So the, there was a intergroup level of, of camaraderie was was the first sub theme. So that's like being funny with colleagues. So that's a, you know, there's a quote saying, you know, they're my saviors. I'm nourished by their cabaret. I'm very thankful for that. They don't know it, but I laugh a lot here. I laugh, I laugh because they make me laugh. These moments that are priceless. And paradoxically, working in this place made me appreciate the worth of a laugh. Well, mm. That kind of thing. Then, then there was pranks which was the, oh, that was the so playful behavior often used in funeral contexts. So this is, this is a long quote. I lay down on a stretcher. I disinfected it first. I even took my socks off and let my feet hang outside. A wet sheet on me in order to show that the corpse was very disgusting and that it was leaking. And my hands placed like this. She crossed her arms on her chest. And this was in order to hide that I was breathing. When this guy came in, my colleague said to him, 
come and see what we picked up. Look, it's dreadful. It's leaking a lot from the mouth, its nose. It's all wet. I could hear and got a glimpse of this guy's silhouette from behind the green sheet. And he said, how disgusting. You're right. And since he wasn't wearing any gloves, he couldn't raise the sheet. As he got nearer, and I sat up. (laughs) He turned around and put his hands on the wall and he stayed like that for half an hour. And so, and then, and then one of one of her colleagues added that since this guy had worked in several morgues, the worker had had that prank played on him like a couple of times. <laughs> Another prank took place in a hospital where the church had an intercom connected to the morgue, probably so that they could listen to a Catholic mass. And so, a few of the workers went to the microphone and started to pronounce phrases in a slow, low voice, like "I feel you, I see you, I know everything." <laughs> causing agitation and chaos amongst the people in the morgue. Anyway, so that they also they also identified the final sub theme, which was like laughing along with other professionals. So it was basically like you know crematorium workers having banter with, with funeral service operators, mm. like when they would kind of catch up, you know, having a joke. And that seemed that was quite common. Second thing, which is self-enhancing humor. So this is this uh, this coping function, dealing with negative situations, emotions, even using it when retelling stories to friends and family to like note the lighter mm. side of the work. So there's, there's quite a lot of sub themes here. Right? Cadaver rhetoric. So this is humor where the corpse or the cause of death was the focus of the laughter, and and you know being related to coping with the weirdness of it all right Mm. this is quite a confronting story so there was a patient who developed a severe cervical lordosis so she basically she lived for 20 years in a wheelchair and Mm. had been bent like sort of and to the point at which she you know her nose was sort of down on her knees essentially and when she died the family requested look you know can you just you know, we don't want her straightened out. Like, just leave her how she was, right? Okay. And so the the worker was quoted as saying, oh, you know, it was really unsightly. It was like a horror movie. Her nose was almost touching the knee. And the problem was during transportation from the ER to the morgue, since she was covered by a sheet, she had a certain effect. She was sitting on the stretcher. She looked like Casper. I mean, ooh. <laughs> So confronting, right? But mm. you know they're they're taking the, the <laughs> you're fighting the, the laughter back. Um, I may have read these a few times. So uh, raw. So you know language is a defense mechanism. So raw was mm. one of the sub themes. So like re- when recalling tough situations. So they talked about corpse recovery after railway accidents. And this is mm. so you know you take an arm out from under a train and then you walk with an arm in your hand. You know, like in a video game, like zombies we laugh about it there was another theme called laughing along with clients which was humorous ways to dispel and lighten up and play death issues down and and they talked about you know sometimes it was possible to laugh with clients and that this was usually easier with some types of clients who and you know so there we group of people who will buy a grave whilst they're still alive right and so you know the the worker was saying you know you close the grave sale for a married couple and you can tell them well now you can go book a cruise and they go yes of course you know it's a way a way of way of them to use humor to get them not thinking about their own death like you know let's okay so and then yeah your favorite isn't it 
Oh no, this is one of my no, the next one's my favorite. Tragic tragic comedy. So so this like just the tragic comic side of certain situations. So someone came in to get their ashes. So this is in Italy, remember? And the, someone came to get their mother's ashes, and the worker checked to see which staff member had taken care of it, and they'd read out the worker's name out loud, except that the worker's surname was the same as a domestic pet, like cat. And so the client heard this and said, what? No, no, what animal? No, my mother's ashes. <laughs> um, and, then, and then the final, oh, no, second final, was a context ambiguity. So hilarious situations where the incongruence or ambiguity caused an incorrect interpretations of reality. So you look like you're going to struggle to get through this one. <laughs> A crematorium worker recalled a case reported to him by a client. He was an old widower who had bought his burial recess ahead of time and arranged to include his name and picture next to the one of his deceased wife. He moved to a different town several years later, so when he happened to be back in town, he went to the cemetery to visit his beloved wife. A woman carrying a baby moved closer to him to ask information and he answered to her, I don't know, I'm not from around here anymore. The woman turned looked at him and then saw the gravestone with the picture of a man standing in front of her. She screamed and ran away, <laughs> thinking she'd seen a ghost. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. <laughs> um, um, and then the final sub-theme in this, this category was the undertaker's humour. So this is ne- dealing with negative emotions in a healthy way. So one remarked about how their colleague had did good hairdressing of the deceased and that he'd like to lay down on the stretcher and get get yeah. his done hair done. They then talked about aggressive humour. So this is that that negative, other directed mm. style. There was cynicism, so that the purpose being to detach themselves from the death context. It, you know, it helps us to detach from what we do, but in the long run it's not that useful because I, I think about it anyways, was one of the mm. quotes. They gave examples about them being cynical to the visitors of the morgue who acted in annoying or in ignorant ways. Quite clear they there was a theme of keeping it behind the curtains, so you know they keep keep that humour out of sight from their clients and maintain professionalism, needing a place to take a break, you know, and then that makes them feel normal. Yeah. One there was one of the quotes saying, you know, there's they find it hard not to laugh at points. You know, there's moments where they they say to themselves, I've got to not look at my colleague, otherwise I'm gonna start laughing, you know. Because yep. something clearly something funny has happened or, you know, that's funny to them. Mm. So they, <laughs> I don't know, I just found really, I had the best time reading this article, as you can tell. The, um, they seem, seem to think it fits with other research, you know, with paramedics and crime scene investigators. And I've got to say, I, I, it feels very real, like very accurate research yeah. with some of the work that I've come across, like in palliative care and in oncology mm. and things that are, you know, really kind of potentially morbid. But, you know, there's like a practicality in an everyday nature because you're going into the hospital every day and you're doing that mm. kind of stuff. Uh, there's sort of a, um, you know, you have to laugh or you cry kind of element yep. to it. And that when you're exposed to that sort of stuff, you start to kind of think, well, there's no reason why I can't laugh at, at these things. Like it's kind of odd that we delineate there are particular things that we can't laugh at. And if you're working in that every day, of course you're going to, 
laugh at funny things that come up. That's just normal ways of coping and dealing with it. And there would be ridiculous things that happen. It's just that the context is... Yeah, yeah. yeah. One one of the ones I didn't read out, but there was a thing about one of the things where the worker had been asked to like read a poem and like Mm -hmm. there was an old, old lady who's it was her husband had died and the first line of the poem is you know what else is there to say and to the and the lady said to me nothing <laughs> like it is sort of, yeah. you know and the and the the worker sort of had to keep going because that was the job was to finish yeah. this poem that was being requested to do um you know so they viewed very much laughter in this setting as is where people are working with dead bodies you know traumatic events you know from traumatic deaths you know Mm. you know um and dealing with grieving families you know that that laughter is this coping mechanism that it's an adaptive way to foster to to get through these events Mm. right so and also like develops like group cohesion social support yeah but then they also noted that kind of side of like well it can bring out sort of aggressive and cynical ways of humor and things Mm. like that so and then you know, that could be a sign of depersonalization and things like that. But I mean, I think there's something to do with tension and laughter. Mm. Like if you build tension, like, you know, and that's often one of those things in, in movies and things like that, where something that the punchline won't actually be that funny, but because there's been so much tension yeah, when it's so unexpected or like you've been holding on so long, it's really, really funny. Yeah. Yeah, right. And I don't, I must have talked to you before about seeing... I think the the most intensely that I've laughed at a comedy gig was Daniel Sloss, who's a Scottish comedian, and his first show it was a small room. There wasn't many people the first time he came to Australia, and no one really knew what they were walking into, just that the show was called Dark, I think. So we all knew that it was you know, dark comedy. But he built the tension so successfully and then dropped everyone at once and it was this kind of like the entire room you could feel everyone holding their breath and then just bursting out with laughter and then going oh we shouldn't have laughed and then it would go again it was it was exhausting but also so enjoyable yeah it was that real thing of like a couple of times he would sort of play on it and go i'm not gonna break the tension for you yet (laughs) going like this is too much yeah 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 and and that that sort of expectation then adds to it and there's like a you know people will then look at each other like are they going to do it are they going to do it like you know and you think about classic visual comedy where austin powers movies where he's like he picks up a a mug and it's actually full of shit and he thinks it's it's coffee and there's this like tension he's like well like like is he gonna do it is he gonna do it is he gonna do it and like it like you know and they drag it out Whereas if they did it straight away, it wouldn't have been, like, you wouldn't, wouldn't you wouldn't, like, and it's a really, it's quite a lame joke when you really think about it. Yeah. But, yeah. So, there's something about that, having a lot of tension. Yeah. Mm, And then I guess that, and I guess that that builds with that extroversion thing of, you know, and that social connection thing. And whereas Mm. if it's much funnier when you're with other people and you're like, we're all in this together. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Shall we... Take a break. Let's take a break. Let's uh, take a break and we'll come back with things we came across. <laughs> I love to laugh <laughs> loud and long and clear. <laughs> I love to laugh. <laughs> 
It's getting worse every year. <laughs> the more I laugh, <laughs> the more I fill with glee. <laughs> and the more the glee, <laughs> the more I'm a merrier me. <laughs> it's embarrassing. <laughs> the more I'm a merrier me. <laughs> Uh, this is the break where we ask you to do all sorts of lovely things and where I drive Hunter insane with my ability inability to stay on topic. Actually, I, I've, I've been listening back to a few of them and you've actually been pretty good. I know. Anyway, I'm, but I'm we, we, it would be good to get some more reviews. Yes. We've been getting a lot of ratings on uh, Apple and and, and uh, where uh, other places, Spotify, things like that. Mm-hmm. But if people pop a little review in of the show, if you like it, particularly if you're in the UK, that'd be good. Mm. The, the couple of reviews there, not so great. and But we do have some UK listeners and we'd like to get some more. So where can people find out more about us, Amy? You can go to our website where there's a bit of a blurb about each of us. You can also find all of our past episodes there. So twoshrinkspod.com. You'll find old episodes, episodes grouped by topic, stuff about us, links to every possible platform that we exist on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. So I'm be, really being thrown by you wearing a hat. It's because I've got lockdown hair. Yep. I just, I don't, like, I see you in a hat at the beach and often it's not a cap. Yeah. And that's it. And it's just you with a cap. It, there's something about the cap and the microphone and the headphones that makes you look kind of like a 90s gamer. Yeah. Um, yeah. My, my wife said that if when I wear a cap, I like I lose like 25 IQ points straight up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Thank you, everyone, for listening. We're going to stop procrastinating and get to you things we came across. Things we came across. Yes. This is this is the part of the show we love to do, but often frequently it's like the least prepared part. So this is a this is part of the episode where we talk about something we've come across during the week, during the month. It's been about a month since we recorded. Something that interesting, something curious, a piece of research that we looked much more interesting than what we were trying to search for, that kind of thing. So where are you exactly. taking us, Amy? Where are you first? This time I actually stumbled across something. So I was looking for if there was anything on humour and schadenfreude, our favourite emotion. And I ended up with a couple of articles. It was one of those ones where I read the abstract and then went, oh, it's a conference paper, so I can't read the article. And then looked down the side at all of the articles that had cited it and discovered that there's a whole niche area of psychology that I had no idea existed. Which is robot psychology. Robot psychology. <laughs> yep, apparently that's where that's where we're at. I'm just hearing that Fly of the Concord song. <laughs> robots, yeah. The distant future. The year 2000. So I thought I could tell you a couple of titles and yep. then give you two brief kind of snippets about two that really tickled my fancy. Yeah, go for it. So the first one that really grabbed me 
was the one that, you know, led me down this winding road, which was robot humour, how self-irony and schadenfreude influence people's ratings of robot likability. This was a conference paper that they got participants to observe a robot-robot interaction between iCat, one robot, and now another robot. Now was sort of self-deprecating, laughed at himself. Mm. And iCat laughed at now, not at themselves. And they found that participants liked the robot with a positively attributed form of humour more than the gloating robotic interaction partner, Mm. which I felt like really showed that the authors were a little bit biased as well, given how they described the Schadenfreude robot as gloating. Mm. But likability ratings showed a trend to approach each other when either robot laughed or when both of them laughed together. So if they were both on board with laughing at now, then everyone was good with both. But if it was just iCat laughing at now, yep. people weren't a fan of iCat. I'm just, I'm, just, I'm just wondering like, if any, any listeners are like, just filled with cold dread listening to this, the fact that robots are laughing. And I'm just thinking oh, like, just you wait. like, I'm thinking either this is the precursor to the T-1000 or the robots are going to find this recording in the future and then we'll Just be like, we'll be unplugged from the Matrix. Like, that's. Yeah, look, there's a lot of concerning content <laughs> in this. Yeah. Um, I did find it interesting that female participants found the Schadenfreude robot more likable <laughs> and <laughs> male participants liked the self deprecating one look, more. Girls, girls like bad boys, whether they're, <laughs> whether they're human or robotic. And people who are more neurotic liked the self-deprecating robot more. Um, yeah. So <laughs> that was the first one. Other topics of interest included robotic storytelling. Yep. So whether you can get robots to be actors um, in a stage play. Mm-hmm. There was humorous robot photographer mm-hmm. about whether people smiled more genuinely if the robot taking the photo told them jokes. And there was Irony Man, Robots with Irony, um, which was about whether they could be ironic and whether people would appreciate their irony. Yeah. Um, And then the last one that I wanted to tell you about also concerned me because it was called Development and Testing of Psychological Conflict Resolution Strategies for Assertive Robots to Resolve Human-Robot Goal Conflict. And the idea... This, This whole area needs to be shut down. Yep. Like so this first, this opening sentence of this abstract is chilling. <laughs> chilling. Go. As service robots become increasingly autonomous and follow their own task-related goals, human-robot conflicts seem inevitable, especially in shared spaces. <laughs> actually, actually, Amy, I'm going to get you to repeat that. Service robots become increasingly autonomous and follow their own task-related goals. Human-robot conflicts seem inevitable, especially in shared spaces. <laughs> that work? Thank you. <laughs> um, so they talk about that for successful conflict resolution, they need to train the robots to have conflict resolution strategies. Mm. So they're starting with public cleaning robots and home assistance robots. And they're wanting to transfer psychological concepts like negotiation and cooperation into the robot. 
they tried out 15 different strategies um, and they were kind of grouped by the expected emotional outcomes, so positive, neutral, negative. Unsurprisingly, the positive and neutral strategies were found to be more acceptable by humans and more effective. And this is also an upsetting sentence. Some negative strategies, i.e. threat, command, even led to reactance and fear. Good. No shit, Sherlock. No shit. Yeah. Um, so acceptance was predicted by the robots being polite and trustworthy and compliance was predicted by interpersonal power so if people felt like the robots had more power yeah we're all doomed Chill. we should shut this down <laughs> this is this is ah, this is not good no no I, I don't know how we stop this Um, well, I mean, let, let, <laughs> let, should, we, should we just go to a palate cleanse? Um, I, I, wanted, I, wanted, I, I wanted to do two, two things we came across. First of all, I wanted to just mention a book I've been reading. It's called In Moonland, and it's by Miles Allison. He's a friend of mine, and he's written a book, and it's a fiction book, and it's... I'll read you the blurb because it's just, it's just the most lovely writing, and it's a really interesting story. In present-day Melbourne, a man attempts to piece together the mystery of his father's apparent suicide as his young family slowly implodes. At the ashram of Bhagwan Sri Rajanesh in 1976, a man searching for salvation must confront his capacity for violence and darkness. And in a not-too-distant future, a woman with a life-altering decision to make travels through a climate-ravaged landscape to visit her strange father. It's just really lovely to read something that's written by an Australian and mm. um, it, the prose is really good. So I'm just really enjoying that. So that's In Moonland by Miles Allison. So I'll, I'll put a link to that. The the I, I love a letter to the editor. <laughs> yes, you do. I, I really do. Uh, so I, I, look, I've got lockdown here. Melbourne's in lockdown. Mm. We've been in lockdown for, uh, what, a couple months now? Yeah, six weeks. So six weeks ago, I was due for a haircut. Like mm. we went into lockdown on the Friday and I was due for a haircut on the thing on the Tuesday the, after that. So, <laughs> so I, so I put in, so, so that's a context for why I put haircut into the search engine, the academic search engine thing. Yeah. The, I was hoping for a, you know, do haircuts increase well-being study. None. Mm. There's a gap in the research there. There was some really interesting stuff about barbershops and the social function they play in the African-American mm. community. But yeah. to do like, does a haircut improve your well-being? Does, mm. uh, there was no, no research on it. So, you know, aspiring researchers, get out there. Anyway, so I was scrolling, 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 and I found a letter to the editor in, in the Journal of Counseling Psychology, volume number four, number two, 1957. Beautiful. <laughs> I, I just like the language in this. Some hairdo, I thought, when I first met Johnny Rogers. It was the most unorthodox yet interesting style I'd ever seen. Extremely long and thick on the sides. It was shaped to form a duck tail in the back. Heavy sideburns extended well below the ears and there was a carefully cultivated curl dangling at the forehead. Johnny's hairdo seemed to combine all the best and worst features of the coffeetures of Tarzan, Elvis Presley, Buffalo Bill, Father Time and a floor mop. <laughs> Perhaps the latter might be a more accurate expression of Johnny's motif. Anyway, the getup was original and obviously represented months of patient growing and grooming. Johnny had come to see me about getting a job. He was only 16 and just quit school. He'd never worked. 
In addition to the duck tail, Johnny was also wearing peg pants and black jacket so fashionable among today's youths. I'd never heard of youths before. Anyway, so the, the letter kind of talks about what kind of job do you want, Johnny? You know, and he's like, you know, do you want to work in a factory or a garage? He's like, no, I want to work somewhere high class, right? Like Wall Street or something, you know. This kid could barely read and, you know, didn't have many clothes. And like this, and so this guy's like, well, he sort of had this realization that, you know, he's got nothing, but actually he's got his hairdo and that's pretty much all he's got, right? And, 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 and how important this hair was to him. That was the big realization for this guy. And then like, and what was sort of interesting was like, you know, this guy says, oh, you know, maybe you should go for a personal interview tomorrow. And I suggest, you know, that'll give you time to get a haircut. So, like two things there. One is you could just go for an interview somewhere, like yeah. just that easily. God, yeah. the fifties were different. Anyway, um, and then you know, so he tries to say, you know, you should probably get a haircut, blah blah blah, and he doesn't do it. And then he, um, you know, if you... on, he acknowledges that the haircut is the only thing that this guy has. Yeah, but then and then sends him to go and get a haircut. No, we suggest he suggests that. He suggests it, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and I think the kid's like, no, what, is in my hair okay this yeah. way? You know, and the guy's like, well, you know, blah, 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 blah. And a few months later, Johnny called at the hair at the office with the honest-to-goodness haircut. That, that's a quite direct quote, honest-to-goodness right. haircut. <laughs> uh, and, you know, had a white shirt on and a nicely pressed conservative suit. And he's like, you know, remember that day I was here for the job? Well, you were right. Personal appearance does count a lot. I tried a lot of offices after I left, but when I got turned down everywhere and a, a girl I liked said I should get a haircut and the next day I got a job. <laughs> it's like, wow, things were different. Right. I mean, he prob- probably also, he probably stopped um, having avocado toast. It's probably probably, probably. what helped him. Yeah. <sighs> anyway, <laughs> and then there was like another chapter in the story where several days ago, Johnny had called him and said he wanted to send in a friend who was looking for a job. I think he needs a little guidance and I know you can help him. And, uh, and the next day, his friend was at the office and he took one look at his head and was like, well, this is where we came in. It was the same thing. <laughs> and this is talking about the ducktail hairdo. And with his long sideburns and dangling mop at the front, is it fad or frill defiance? Anyway. I really want to see a picture of this hairdo. Like, I've got it in my head, but I'm yeah. not... It's one of those descriptions where I'm like, is this accurate, what yeah. I have in my head? Sounds like a mullet to me. Um, yeah. Yeah. And he's like, what is the answer? Anti-ductile legislation, fine or imprisonment or court orders to cease and desist? Ridicule? <laughs> no, none of these. My answer is guidance supplemented with the learning the hard way, as in the case of Johnny. When he saw the need to give up all he had to get something he wanted, he did. And that was by Russell Fornwalt from the Big Brother Movement in New York City. So. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've been at Two Shrinks Pod. Thanks for um, coming on this journey with us with this episode. See you next time. See you later. Bye. Bye. Bye.